I want to dive right in, and for, for the next 10 or 15 minutes, just, just bear with me because I want to really set the stage of the early days of GWAT, especially in Iraq. And there's a few key points I want to discuss with you. And, you know, you know a little bit of my background. I had my 21st, 22nd, 23rd birthday uh, in Iraq, so I have uh, some strong opinions. And you said some stuff here that we're going to get into and want your first opinion on that. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, I only did six years and got out. I, I, I always say, you know, I, sometimes I regret getting out. You know, I'm not that dude that did 20-plus got out. So to me, you know, my time in Iraq, I remember it was 17, 18 years ago, I remember like it was yesterday. But a very key point I want to make because, and it actually hit me on another episode, we were talking about, uh, well, you know, we just had a gentleman on that was uh, in the first Gulf War. And he was talking about, you know, divisions, brigade, two enemies fighting each other, two tanks on a battlefield, you know, forward march, ready fight. Whereas in early Iraq days, it was not like that. There was an insurgency, and to that point, you say um, in, one, in one of the chapters in your book, <clears throat> it was never black and white when we found Iraqis with weapons in their homes. We never knew if they were victims of the insurgency or part of it. But unless they were pointing and shooting the weapons at us, we were not allowed to engage with them. So paint this picture real quick about who was the enemy, what, what, who were you actually fighting in those early days? Well, that was a, a tough thing to discern because what most people don't realize is when you're fighting an insurgency, you're fighting it amongst the population. And for the <clears throat> most part, as you know, that population was predominantly filled with peace-loving Iraqis, totally. uh, peace-loving Afghans in, 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 in a totally separate theater, which is like apples and oranges. Yeah. But in Iraq... The insurgents lived amongst the people. And when we fought, as I wrote about Neko Ramadi, this is a city of over 300,000 people. 300,000 people. So you can equate that to Phoenix or Scottsdale, for that matter, you know, here in Arizona. Uh, it, it's a large, well-developed city. It's been around for a long, long time. So you never really knew who the enemy was. But it was this constant day-in, day-out fighting. Very... Mm -hmm well-trained enemy, and we were fighting sometimes five, six, seven times a day in direct contact with a very well-trained enemy force. But one of their tactics was to stage weapons throughout the city, stage them in your home. And right. you could imagine just working at a normal job. I don't care what you do for a living. Maybe you, you make coffee at Starbucks or you work at IBM. I don't know, something benign. But someone rolls into your house and puts a gun to your head or a gun to your kid's head and says, I'm leaving these weapons in this closet. If you tell the Americans where it is, we'll come back and kill you. Right. So we fought am amongst the city, amongst the people that wanted us there. So they were very torn. Do we tell the Americans and hope that they kill all the insurgents at some point? Or do I risk my, my own and my family's safety? And you had a mix between the two. And y you really do. And, and it was a lawless, <coughs> ruthless regime that was rolling through that city at that time. It, it, it's not hyperbole that it was absolutely the deadliest city in Iraq at the time in 2006 and 2007. And part of the problem is when we went in there in 03 and in the later years, I mean, everything that makes a city a city, a police force, an army, a government, maybe a banking system, down to the, the sanitation people in the streets. I mean, I, I say everything was wiped out. I mean, it was, it was, it was sort of like the wild, wild west. That's the best analogy I ever use. Or, or the Star Wars cantina where you've got like all of these strange rangers from 
diplomats to business professional to tactical casual to active duty military. All these people are rolling around in the city trying to do all these things, not only as the military's primary mission, kill or capture anti-Iraqi forces, but you had other people there with similarly aligned missions to establish governance, to build infrastructure, because mm-hmm. we talk a lot about this uh, word democracy. And what the American public loves to talk about is American democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and America has this fascination with fast food, fast ATM cash, this fast food culture. And they also want fast democracy. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't ever happen. I, I think that We've we've seen this recently just within this week in Afghanistan with the withdrawal of, of U.S. forces is the sentiment in America is we're done with this war. Twenty years is long enough. Well, what we really failed to do in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's, it, it applies to both, is be good students of history. And we can just use World War II for that example in the Pacific and European theaters, where after years and years and years of waging war and laying waste to entire continent in the Pacific Rim and in Japan and Okinawa and the, and the, and the island campaign that we had, we stayed. We, we pres- stayed, we and it took 50 years. Right. And now you look at the end result of that is we have we are trade partners and allies with these countries because they finally figured out what right looks like. They finally figured out that you can't just say, I want to plant a seed here and it's called democracy. And it's not American democracy or French democracy or British democracy. It's democracy. There's only one flavor. So we're going to get into that. Back in these early days in Iraq, the insurgents, do you think they saw... I mean, they, as us as occupiers, and we're trying to just come over and take over your land. That's their version of what we were doing there. I think that was probably the narrative that most of them wanted to digest. But when you're talking about Islamic extremists that have this gross misinterpretation of the Quran, and they use that to really get across their hateful ideology and impose Sharia law in whatever sense they want, they're going to use that. That's the blanket that they sleep in. Mm every night and to get most Americans to really understand how evil that really is you have to experience that Mm. and it was another gross failure from our perspective at the administrative level all the way down to the tactical level is our lack of understanding of culture when we go into these different theaters of operation and we have to understand what their culture is how the enemy sees us and then how to develop a strategy from the administrative and strategic operational all the way down to that tactical level on how we're going to apply force and then really define this question. What is winning? What is winning to us as a nation? What is winning to those guys who are kicking doors in and killing bad guys day in and day out? And then how does all that apply to enhance and bolster our national security as a country? That's my question. 